Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is David Mercer, CEO of LMAX Group, a global financial technology company offering trading platforms in foreign exchange and metals and a robust market for cryptocurrency. Former banking executive and currency specialist, David joined LMAX Group in 2011 as the interim CEO when the Betfair-owned trading platform was heavily loss-making. After a successful management buyout, David rapidly built LMAX Group into the leading operator of institutional foreign exchange and also cryptocurrency exchanges, with offices in nine countries and a global client base. LMAX is aiming to disrupt the industry and change the way £4.7 trillion a day is traded, particularly by providing a secure, fair marketplace for cryptocurrency. As David says, three years ago, there was zero interest from the banks in crypto trading, and now one-third take market data from us. I expect two to three major banks to be trading crypto with us by the end of this year. And it's very nice to have you here. How are you? Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Elliot. It's an absolute pleasure. The fintech world, David, when we started this program in 2012, fintech was but a glint in the eye of somebody. Tell me in your own words what being the CEO of a big fintech business is really about. What do you think about on a daily basis before we get into the nuts and bolts of what LMAX is and how you've created this beast? I think fintech, I mean, every company in the world now really in financial services has to be fintech. I mean, we're all technology enabled. But in terms of, you know, what I think about, what keeps me awake at night, it's actually quite simple. You know, number one, does the technology work? Number two, is it fast? And number three, you never quite get to number three, is it sexy, right? So if you've done all the, uh, does it work? Is it up and running? And is it quick enough? Then after that, you can get to the, the bells and whistles around the edges and make it sexy. But you spend most of your time focusing on number one and number two. And in terms of LMAX specifically, most people will politely say, oh, yes, 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 my friend David. He's, <laughs> he's in the fintech world. He, he deals in big numbers, lots of zeros. I don't really know what he does, but it's clever. In your own words, if you were explaining it to me, who knows a little bit, what would you say LMAX actually does? Yeah, so don't worry. I mean, I've had that most of my 30-odd years working career. It's the worst on a golf course when someone says, what do you do, David? So look, primarily we operate five exchanges globally, mostly in foreign exchange or the currency markets. And the last one we did is in crypto, which is, of course, at the forefront of everyone's mind at the moment. More or less, we match buyers and sellers that want to trade euros for dollars. It's not much different. So when I'm on the 17th and someone asks me that question, it's more or less a big version of going to the Bureau de Change. The difference is we don't charge you those rates that you see at the airport or the high street Bureau de Change. So we trade many, many billions every day, 25 billion. And the spread is, shall we say, wafer thin. To give you an idea, the bank A would trade with bank B and the difference between the buy and sell price would be $10 per million. And I get a very small part of that $10 for every trade. Whereas if you go to the Bureau de Change and then you're doing 500 quid, the Bureau de Change probably tries to make 25 quid on the 500. 
but the, obviously the game in town is the volume. Correct. And the point is the more people you have, then the more the slithers add up to less than a wafer thin size profit, hopefully hurtling towards around 60, 90 million pounds of profit this last year. Yeah, gross take. profit should be uh, dollars. I wish it was pounds, but uh, we'll, we're getting there. $90 this year, million dollars. I said at the beginning, David, this is a, it's an unusual position. You took over a business in 2011, 10 years ago now, and it was losing money. And you were suddenly thrust into a pretty serious management role. Before we talk about that specific moment, all the jobs that you did leading up to that, and and whether it was the EY training program at the beginning of the career or or the work with Credit Suisse or the various roles that you had at different companies, could you have done the takeover? Could you be sitting where you are now without having picked up all those chips, as it were, along the way? What did you learn before you were thrust into the big CEO role? I mean, definitely not, but you don't know that at the time. Probably 20 years ago, I I thought I could have done it. Someone said to me recently, because, you know, we get to that age, Elliot, and everyone's going, oh, you know, what's next? Are you going to sort of take the foot off the gas? And uh, this gentleman looked at me and says, you're doing exactly what you should be doing now, aren't you? And he's right. I mean, I sort of compartmentalized my career into three decades, three chapters. And look, the first decade, none of us knew. It was a case of getting your head down, working hard and learning the business of capital markets. Now, I didn't necessarily know I'd be any good at it. I didn't know if I'd like it, but turns out I was okay and I did quite like it. So I really learned my trade, if you like, in the first decade, and that was in banking. And then the next decade, of course, you know, you get into your 30s, you have aspirations of grandeur, maybe you want to run more of your own show and not just be an employee. So you go out, and I did various roles there. I left capital markets for a, for a couple of years as well basically learning how to run a business, um, if you like, learning how to be an entrepreneur, not being, I would say, particularly successful financially, but learning a boatload about what running a business likes. Because when you're in one of these great banks or great big offices, you don't really learn much about VAT returns and tax returns and actually getting power supply into the building and looking after people. You're just doing one single function. So yeah, another decade learning how to be an entrepreneur. And then this opportunity came up at LMAX. I mean, although you say it was a heavy position, it was actually the easiest role I'll ever have in the first six months. I was an interim CEO of what was effectively a failed startup and uh, the best job I'll ever have because the problems weren't really mine. It was a case of, is there anything to salvage here for the existing shareholders? All the stresses and strains came after that first six months where effectively end up doing an MBO and suddenly you had real skin in the game and it was your company and all the problems were yours. So um, yeah, I think the first 20 years were um, a vital university, a long but vital university degree to do what I do today. And the MBO, the management buyout back in 2011, as you said, the first six months, absolutely, I can imagine these aren't my issues and I can fix them, great, I'll, I'll be the hero. But after the point you've got skin in the game, as you said, it's yours. Looking back now, what didn't you know that you're quite relieved you didn't know about what you were about to take on? And what's revealed itself now? You go, wow, if I'd actually have understood that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now with a successful business. What were those things? A hundred percent. I mean, naivety is good sometimes, right? So you can't know everything. I mean, look, it's very hard because you have lots of friends. I have lots of friends. I've done it myself. You have startups and basically it's a big spreadsheet model and everything doesn't go up in a straight line. So Getting the right people in the right positions, that's really difficult. 
And you look at people's CV sometimes and they go, oh, that's okay. But then you work, they don't perform the function for me very well, or they don't connect with the other connectors. So probably not knowing some of those deficiencies was key. Not knowing how hard it was to keep technology present, right? And up to speed. I mean, that might scare me off. And then in the core business, if you think about me just matching, you know, very simple foreign exchange business, matching buyers and sellers, but persuading large bank A to put a price onto your platform rather than onto another platform. Obviously, I think I'm the best sales guy on the planet, but clearly not because some of those processes took three, four years to persuade the largest banks in the world to start trading with you. So yeah, I think the naivety of this is a great plan. I'm brilliant. I know everything. And it'll probably all just work out within 12 months. I think that naivety was key. So uh, I'm glad we stuck with it. But certainly, it was much harder than expected. And my advice to other people out there is don't expect your three-year plan to be right. It, it does take seven. This is why, you know, at my age now, Elliot, I, I can't be doing it again, pure and simple, because it's seven years of hard graft. And I happen to have chosen a a market, a business which operates 24 hours a day, five days a week, now 24 hours a day, seven days a week when you look at crypto. So you don't get much private time. You don't get much off time. You don't get to go home at 5 p.m. So they're, uh, they're your problem is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So not knowing that, probably a good thing. Stay with me for more honesty and the revelations around naivety and the benefits of naivety with my business shape today. And just, uh, I think the words, it's the overnight success, which will take at least seven years. Bear that in mind before you jump. Much more coming up from David Mercer in a couple of minutes. But right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dres, Tom Grogan and Anne Rose talk about the latest trends and developments in the world of blockchain and the key opportunities and threats affecting businesses looking to implement blockchain platforms. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. What do you say to any organisation who's looking to implement blockchain technology today? I think the first piece of advice I'd give hasn't changed over the last sort of four or five years. It's, it's verify that you've got a use case and that blockchain has, has meaningful value proposition for your business or your organisation. The second thing is make smart platform decisions early and design choices that, that have a view and an eye to, to progress and development in this space, uh, ensuring interoperability and longevity. Uh, the developments we've seen over the last 12, 18 months have been extraordinary, and I, I think we, we all expect that to continue. So, so organizations want to be sure that what they're building today maintains relevance and, and efficacy in, in 12, 18 months' time. I'd seek to identify uh, the key stakeholders. I think so often I've lost track of the, the number of times I've spoken to clients, public sector and private sector, who have asked the question, could the technology do this? Could the uh, technology do that? <laughs> the answer is almost always yes. The technology can do most things. We tend to find that, that the problems aren't uh, tech-based. They're people-based and they're stakeholder-based. I think it's incredibly important that very, very early on, organisations identify who are the key important stakeholders that are going to be involved with their implementation and bring them in and, and actually sort of empower them by involving them in the, the design thinking process. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. 
Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can hear all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast, and there are plenty of them there. But back to today, it's David Mercer. He's the CEO of the Elmax Group, a global financial technology company offering trading platforms in foreign exchange, metals, and a marketplace for cryptocurrency. You're talking about the seven years before, David, and you kind of said as much as it was tough and great that you didn't know what you didn't know, you were sort of born for the role as an exaggeration, but it was there was no dissonance between you and the job. Had you harboured ideas at a young age to be your own boss, or did it evolve through the, as you said, the three chapters, where the third chapter indeed was that? You know, how young did it start that said David Mercer's going to run his own show? Look, I think it was definitely an evolution. Probably if you ask friends of mine or, or family, they'd say, maybe because I'm, I guess, aggressive in my approach at times, direct in my approach, it might have been inevitable that I'd have to run my own show, maybe didn't fit well into other bureaucracies out there. I would say right now, you know, I'd be a, a pretty poor employee. So perhaps it was inevitable, but I'll be honest with you, Elliot. I mean, look, I started work when I was 18. You know, I went straight from straight from school into a training program at Ernst & Young. That was sort of, if you like, my degree. And really, the first decade was about earning money and keeping a job. You know, back in the days, I used to turn up in... Cabot Square, which is where the bank was, and there'd be queues of taxis around the corner because you hadn't made the cut. So really, the first decade, I just worked hard, got my head down, and tried to be a good employee. I think that was the basis of becoming a boss. But I can't tell you in my 20s, I had uh, ideas of being a boss. Perhaps as you mature through your business career, that becomes more obvious. You also came to the UK from Northern Ireland when you were aged 11. Yeah, and um, I believe you got an assisted place at this nice, very nice school in, in North London, which shall remain nameless unless you mention <laughs> it. I really don't mind if you do at all. It's sort of relevant on one level, but not really. But is there a, I always, when I talk to people who are quote unquote immigrants in some form, do you think there's a bit of the hunger, the grit in the oyster, which is there just because of your background, nothing to do with any, it's not the nature thing, it's purely nurture. Is there that or is that stretching it a little? I think it's there. I think it's inbuilt. I mean, you you see it in today's economy. Very simple. The driver of having a roof over your head, having enough to eat and having enough to have nice things, if you like, that's that's a very potent driver. But I can't speak from the other side where perhaps I have an inheritance. So you know, I come from a working class background. That's it. You know, you know, my father worked in a factory for, for 25 years and then lost his job when he was 58 because they, they closed the factory. That's the DNA. So in there is, if you like, an inert nature to work hard. It just so happens that I do it in an office rather than on a production line. So I think that's the driver. And perhaps what I learned all my life was a work ethic. And from being a poor sportsman to being what I am in, in business, I guess it's underneath all of that is that core work ethic and hunger, if you like. And that work ethic and hunger, is that what you look for in anyone that you hire, regardless of intellect and, and technological capability and so on and so forth? Can you spot the, the grit? Can you spot the hunger? Is it important to you? I think you can spot the grit. I mean, the world has changed. I think for the better, I mean, I was expected to work 14-hour, 16-hour days back in my 20s. And 
pure and simply, if I didn't, there was a queue around the corner of another 100,000 people who would do it instead. I think it's proven that you don't have to work people so hard anymore and you don't value them by the hours they work. You value them by the work they put in their hours. But certainly, when we go and hire people, we hire character. That's key. Assuming you have, you're relatively bright. I mean, you don't have to have a, a PhD in astrophysics like some of my employees do, incidentally. You don't have to have all of that behind you. But a work ethic, manners, politeness, and okay, some intellect, some, if you like, knowledge of the segment. I think we can teach you a lot. But with those core factors and the work ethic and uh, manners being being key, I think you can go far in any walk of life and certainly in financial services today. You alluded to the fact that it's less about the hours. You know, the 14, 16 hour culture and, and, and I was in advertising in the same, you know, doing the same decades as you, that first decade. And I worked, I didn't stop working and that's what you did. And you're absolutely right now. There is a difference. It is about what you do, not how long you do it. And people demand different things. There's another element which I want to just bring in, which is that for whatever reason, I'd like to know why you feel like you, you talked about manners, but if you take manners to its extreme, you feel like you're very public spirited. There's a big charitable side to you. There's a charitable side to the business. We mentioned the world, the Guinness World Record rugby game that you played. Where does that desire to give back come from, David? Well, actually, personally, it stems from my mother, right? So you can get all the credit there. I mean, to the day she died, we had to keep funding the bank account because all these direct debits came out. So basically every advert, <laughs> every advert that came up for helping children's sight in Africa or, you know, this aid program or that aid program, she donated to all of them, right, on her pension. So there is that. But also remember, you know, I come from Belfast. You see a lot of a divided society there. I live in Notting Hill, Labrick Grove in London. There's a real mix here. And you see, I particularly look at the, the kids out there. You know, they're not born bad, right? Absolutely, I do not believe that. They just sometimes don't have enough opportunity. So I'd love them to have more opportunity. And in fact, I'm very proud this week, we mentor some of the disadvantaged, if you like, children in, in the neighborhood and we do this quarterly and about 12 of them it's about getting them ready for work rather than giving them a job but actually on the last cohort they call it we hired two and they started work here on monday just to give them a start in their business career i, I think you know we can't always rely on the governments to do this for us i think we have a duty an obligation to try and help society around us and we love this society Elliot you know I love where I live I love where I work and we want it to be a nice place to live and to work and if we happen to do well in business then let's see if we can give something back to our community because we can develop the community probably better than the governments around the world can. And in terms of the, the the money versus the other things that might buzz David Mercer now that he's the ripe old age of around 50 Am I right in thinking that, yes, of course, you've got financial security as long as the business is doing well and no one ever knows if it will continue to do well. But if you carry on investing in people and technology and all the things that you're doing, it probably will. Do these other things, the thing you just described to me, the helping other people, do they actually make you happier than the fact that you might be paid X versus X minus 10% last year? 100%. Given a fair run at it, that's probably all I'd do. I'm fortunate in a way, but when you come from a working class background, I mean, a lot of money isn't a lot of money. 
if that makes sense, in that I saw the happy life that my family had from working in a factory. So you don't need millions or billions to be happy. So that stopped being a driver. Honestly, a decade or two ago, it stopped being a driver when I knew I could exist, when I knew I could feed myself, when I knew I could have somewhere nice to live and start to help out families. So 100%, it's more about um, the other things, the other people you can help, the community you can help. Of course, look, I'm a competitive spirit. If I'm going to be in business, I want to be good at it. And if you like, I want to win. But if you're only doing it for money, I'm afraid you will fail. And I'm fortunate now that that would probably be the third or fourth driver. Whereas in my 20s, it would have been number one because we had to exist. We had to live. Stay with me for my final chat with my great guest there. It's David Mercer. And we've also got something a little special from Kurt Elling. That's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. I'm with David Mercer just for a few more minutes. And we've been talking about all sorts of things. David, your business is predicated on technology. A lot of this is to do with how you synthesize tech with the client experience, as it were. You've also said, look, I'm 10 years into this, and it's not that you're tired. You look the antithesis of tired. You're, you're absolutely raring to go. How do you ensure that you remain at the cutting edge of technology and where it needs to play a role? What is it that you do and that people around you to make sure that you are, that LMAX is still doing the things that are are making waves? Yes, yeah, so that's, uh, we're quite unique. That's quite interesting. We make sure the tech never gets old. For anyone out there in technology, they'll, they'll probably recognize these phrases. We use an agile development methodology. But basically, we release code to our five exchanges every two weeks, right? And we never write a spec, right? We stand up, myself included, and we talk about what we're going to build. So the tech never gets old. And every time you change a bit of your code or you're adding a new feature, you end up rewriting some of the old code. So that helps you to stay at the forefront then, of course, look, there is a bit of investment comes in in terms of infrastructure. Technology improves all the time. You know this on your personal computers, right? So the laptop you thought was great in 10 years ago is now defunct. So that happens in my exchanges in these data centers around the world. So every three years, I've got to upgrade it. We just launched a new exchange um, or refreshed the hardware, sorry, in New York. Turns out that it's twice as fast as the infrastructure I have in London. And we've done nothing clever there at all. Nothing different in terms of software. It was just the infrastructure is that much better. So guess what? Next year, I have to upgrade London, and then I have to update my crypto exchange. So it's just constant. In terms of the, the personal aspect to that, my CTO would do this as a hobby. He loves it. All the guys that work in infrastructure, they love hardware, and the guys who run software love software. All software is is coming up with effective solutions to business problems. They love problem solving. So you need that passion from me to the guy who runs uh, infrastructure to the guy who runs software to always be at the cutting edge or to solve the latest problem. What I love about capital markets is uh, no two crises are ever the same. No two markets are ever the same. So you're always solving new problems. And in terms of the crypto piece, 
you know, I for the first time have, have dabbled on one of the apps I have just to see what happens, just to literally a few pounds just to go what's happening. And it's it's <laughs> volatile to say the least, David. Obviously, because even for a Joe Schmo like me, it's clear that there is quote unquote no underlying asset. It's a thing and you put your money in and you kind of hope. You have said that crypto is going to be mainstream and many people are saying crypto is going to be mainstream. If it is going to be mainstream, is it going to be fundamentally super risky? Will it always be that, but still mainstream? Or do you think there will be some kind of de-risking? Yeah, look, it will become, if you like, less volatile, to use a financial term, and in your your parlance, less risky. It's still very new. The, the white paper was written in 2008. So, you know, Bitcoin is precisely, what, 13 years old, came into the mainstream in some way, I guess, after sort of 2010, 2011. So... 10 years old, how old is gold, right? As old as the planet. But to put it in perspective, you know, the market cap of Bitcoin today is 10% of the market cap of gold. So what you happen in these new markets, you're going to have some volatility. You're going to have some spikes up to a high price and some drops down to really low prices. And if you're an investor, you may not like that, especially if you don't understand it. How many of us really understand the price of gold. How many of us understand the price of oil? Did you realize that last March people paid you to buy oil? That might seem odd. It is odd because you still put it in your, uh, effectively, uh, you still put some of that in your car every day. So yeah, look, you're going to see these peaks and troughs. I'd advise people to look at it as a long-term horizon. Don't buy something for 10 minutes if you're not happy to own it for 10 years. I happen to think blockchain technology will revolutionize capital markets and it may revolutionize everything we do in our day-to-day lives. But we're still at the very early stages. You know, don't listen necessarily to the guys who are telling you it's, you should put all your money into it. I would never advise that. I think people should do exactly what you're doing, Elliot. So dabble in it, try to understand it. Certainly your children, your grandchildren will trade digital currencies, right? Whether that be a digital pound or a digital dollar, they will trade and interact with those and probably with Bitcoin or derivatives thereof. So I think dabble, try and understand it a little bit. You don't have to understand everything about blockchain technology. And I always say to people, don't invest in something which you don't understand. People say to me all the time, some of my friends you've mentioned have said, yeah, David, what do you think about XYZ stock? Typically, my answer is, I have no idea. I've never heard of it. And actually, I'm a terrible stock picker because I don't trade stocks. It's been great talking to you, David. Thank you. Uh, The man who doesn't trade stocks, but the man who is running a rather successful business called Elmax. Um, Sounds like a pretty good approach to me. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen? (laughs) Dancing. uh, I almost forgot there for a minute, Elliot. So it's uh, Dancing Cheek to Cheek, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong. I have visions, as the song says, of my parents who always did once around the dance floor being in heaven, out tonight, dancing cheek to cheek. That was Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong with Cheek to Cheek, the song choice of my business shaper today, David Mercer. When he talked about hiring people, he said work ethic and manners. The juxtaposition of the two is critical. He talked about money. A lot of money isn't a lot of money. Just remember that it isn't the thing that's going to make you happy and certainly isn't his driver. And finally, the way they stay on the edge, the cutting edge, is that they ensure that the tech never gets old absolutely fundamental to any technology-driven business, and he made it sound so simple. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM.
in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazzshapers.